G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. And we don't ask for much in return, they'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or iTunes or even Acast and leave us a review. Five-star review would be great. Um, there, there are other reviews that you can give, but give those to other podcasts that you find are inferior to this one. Or, or you, know, you know what I mean. Anyway, so, uh, so it obviously helps with metrics that uh, uh, gets this podcast out to people that actually want to listen to it. Um, and uh, one day we'll actually understand what those, uh, what those metrics do. And I, I actually believe, Brian, that, uh, that um, iTunes are going to release uh, the, the uh, metrics so we can actually find out what, who downloads from, from iTunes in the future. Um, <clears throat> I believe that's, that's happening. Anyway, sorry, today we're going to talk to uh, Andrew Fish-Jackson. So he's a senior lecturer here at the RBC in, in equine surgery and nominated for the top spec or horse and hound vet of the year, but you didn't get it, Fish. What's uh, going on? Uh, well, <laughs> I was robbed. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, there are some very good candidates, obviously, there and, and from, a, from a wide range um, of, uh, of, of uh, sort of parts of the equine uh, veterinary field, and uh, um, yes, it was done on a vote system, and obviously my hair was out of place that day, and uh, you know that was it. <laughs> well, very well done for for getting nominated. Absolutely, but there was a it was uh, Natalie McGoldrick who was the the, the goalie one, and actually she's a, um, a vet that refers to us as well. So, uh, um, so yes. I can feel some kind of link there. <laughs> very, very good. Well, well, magnanimous in defeat, as, uh, of course. as I imagine. So, so thank you very much, uh, Andy, for joining us um, uh, today. And uh, I thought we, what we'd uh, do is, is speak about uh, colic. So maybe your approach, if you're if you're in the field seeing a, seeing a case, what you what you like to do, or what you uh, if you have the ability to do, what you like to mm. do as well, and maybe how different that is if you actually see a case in in, in the hospital. Sure. I mean, if you had, I mean, frequently, I mean, uh, if you went the first you'll hear of a colic, of course, is if your client phones you up or phones up the reception and is obviously pretty distressed. You know, it's one of the true emergencies. Um, and, you know, the first thing I would say is always just try and, you know, give them a call back. And then usually want something to do. Um, and historically, you know, the instructions were, you know, take the horse for a walk and stop it from rolling. And that's sort of died out now there's no benefit in doing that in fact and you know if you or i had stomach ache the last thing we want to do is be dragged around for for a walk although sometimes i guess it could help but uh really you know just hearing your voice and giving them some sort of words of uh, wisdom which would include really just trying to stop the horse from injuring itself so in the stable maybe remove water buckets and uh and hay nets and uh, or put it in a in a sand school um and also keep people away because of course it can be quite dangerous to people if a horse is violently colicking um you know, they may have some pain relief, um, some phenylbutazone, uh, uh, which they could administer the horse. Sometimes they've already done that, of course, and it's important to establish that. Um, and uh, it could be helpful, you know, if they have administered um, a standard uh, full dose, which would normally be two sachets for a standard 500 kilogram horse, uh, which would amount to two grams. Orally, if the horse will take it, often they won't, because obviously they're not feeling um, like eating. Um, but that's that's about as much as they can really do, um, you know, stop the horse from injuring itself or others, and perhaps administer, administer a standard amount of pain relief. Um, and then, you know, all you can do is just um, let them know how long they're going to be and um, and let them know of your, your, your progress. In terms of the approach, you know, once, once you get there, of course, 
the first thing really what you are it's a sort of double-pronged approach you want to get a little bit of history but you might have got that from them over the phone i mean how long the horse has been colicking for and that might actually be when was the horse actually last seen normal you know they might have discovered the horse colicking perhaps in the morning it might have been colicking all night you know um so signs of what the bed looks like etc and then um you know you need what what you need to understand is of course is the, the you don't want to be spending too much time faffing around with the history whilst the horse is painful you know the first thing you want to do is try and stop that that pain because the owner won't be listening to you will be wondering why the hell you're talking to them and not uh, in addressing the situation and so you know we talked about the butte that the owner might have given of course if if they've um, already given that and the horse is still colicking um then you can give some sedation usually would be uh, that is a very good visceral analgesic the alpha 2 agonist so detomidine would be a classic or xylazine perhaps supplemented with um, uh, torbogesic um, butorphanol um, uh, which will, will provide you with some additional pain relief that will usually get the situation under control uh, and in most situations if the non-steroidal has not already been given so the phenylbutazone or phenixin has not been given you would give that then in tandem so that usually affords you some control over the situation in the first instance um, if the horse is actively colicking. It is surprising, actually, you might find you when you get there, the horse isn't colicking anymore. You know, most colics, in fact, are spasmodic and they last, you know, a matter of minutes or maybe an hour or two. Um, and the horse actually improves somewhat. And you might ask the question, what do you do then? Um, well, in reality, there's nothing wrong with that point, giving a, still giving a, a dose of pain relief um, because... Pain relief can be your your um, benchmark, if you like, of, of when to refer. If the horse does colic through a standard amount of pain relief, then that is an indication. Usually you may well have a, a more serious lesion that can't be managed effectively out in the field. So another reason to get your pain relief on board early, you know, if you get it when you arrive or the, so the owner's already given it, then early in the, in the process you can assess whether that's going to be sufficient even perhaps before you before you leave um can i, can I just ask something so when if you show up at a at a, uh, at a, at a to see a horse and it hasn't been given any any analgesia mm. would you would you give it analgesia and a sedation at the same time or do mm. you would you normally give it say some flexin and then yeah and then wait a bit the problem with yeah so it, it depends on the severity of the signs you're seeing and if you're seeing a horse that is literally throwing itself around and, and, and at risk of injuring itself um, or others then you know your sedation is going to act a lot quicker you know actually a non-steroidal given intravenously will act pretty quickly but that may well be 10 to 15 minutes before it's really had its it got its full effect um and that can be a long time on a horse that's really uh, throwing itself around if a horse is just showing some mild pouring and and you know flank watching lip curling these sort of milder signs um then you know obviously you can you don't have to give that um, sedation um but it's important to realize the sedation is a very powerful visceral analgesic and so it's a very effective way of gaining control over the situation and of course that's you know pretty high up in the priorities when you're out there in the field it's you with often a bunch of onlookers as well you know are looking to you to take control and the first thing to do of course is to get the horse um, settled also so you can perform the rest of your examination but you're right you know if the horse is is you know mildly colicking this is a judgment call you have then you might decide just to give uh, the non-steroidal and then, of course, you need to understand you know, what sort of things um, uh, will make the horse that painful. What things can you do potentially to make them uh, less painful that don't include uh, drug therapy? If I should say, if you have an option uh, and if it's safe to do so to take the horse's heart rate and listen to its gut sounds prior to giving 
any drugs, um, then that can be quite helpful because it gives you, if you sense, sort of the, the raw data, if you like. Um, and the other drug you can give uh, in addition and, and before you perform a rectal examination is very helpful is uh, the buscopan, um, and you can either give the buscopan, straight buscopan, or buscopan compositum. Um, either is effective, one contains uh, the um, uh, 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 non-steroidal in it, the buscopan compositum does. So... Um, Again, if you you know you can also administer that at the same time, so you can give that as the non alongside the non-steroidal, the buscopan, but that does facilitate your rectal exam somewhat. But the buscopan will increase the heart rate. So if you give that and then listen to its heart, you might get a slightly elevated heart rate, you know, into the fifties, which makes you a little bit nervous. You might have a lesion, um, you know, the horse is showing signs of shock. Um, with an elevated heart rate but in fact it's just the the buscopan so you know if you get the option of taking a um, a heart rate and listening to the gut sounds before you give in particular the buscopan uh, but also the alpha 2 the non-steroidal will be less affected by it of course then um, that's that's useful to do so but of course as i say the most important thing is to get the situation under control things will manifest in time anyway irrespective of um, getting those two parameters so as I said, the, trying to establish you know, what, what things, other things you can do to make the horse less painful. And one of the critical things you can do is, if the horse is, is very, very painful, often with a high heart rate, is to pass a stomach tube, which fills some vets with a little bit of dread, perhaps less experienced vets, um, which is completely understandable. It's, uh, it's a procedure that can owners sometimes find a little bit difficult to take. Um, it looks um, not that comfortable to the horse. Um, in all honesty, it probably isn't that comfortable to the horse. Um, and you can get nosebleeds, which is always worth uh, warning the owner about. But provided you pass it ventromedially up the nasal cavity and are careful to pass it into the uh, down to the esophagus, then uh, by uh, checking for reflux, and if the horse does reflux, it's the stomach distension, which makes horses incredibly painful and, of course, can be fatal if the stomach ruptures. Um, so if you pass a stomach tube, um, if you've got a very painful horse, you should passing a stomach tube should be fairly early on in your examination you know before you rectal it and 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 so forth um and what i normally would uh, would do is have uh, a bucket of um uh, either just water with say six seven liters in a sort of standard file kilogram horse uh, and usually in fact within that i'd um, i would normally have um, some electrolytes which i don't necessarily add to the bucket straight away someone if you usually got someone to help uh, the owner or friend of owner or, or whoever um, and you pass the stomach tube and you're looking for reflux essentially but that's actually quite uncommon I mean in my case load surgical caseload is quite common but out in the field with spasmodic colics impactions and so forth reflux would be very uncommon and therefore you've got a stomach tube in place I would say you might as well make use of that yeah. to give the horse some oral fluids if it is an impaction um, and you know fluid therapy is always a positive um, feature in, in uh, just about any disease process so um, you know if you can then if you're not getting any reflux then you can add the electrolytes to the water and fire a, uh, a funnel um, get those six liters into the into the horse obviously you gauge that towards the size of the horse but for a standard 500 kilogram horse six seven eight liters is absolutely fine and very useful but of course you must check for reflux first if fluid wants to come out there's pointless putting that fluid in if you get reflux, then the horse will should be a lot more comfortable. It might the heart rate will probably reduce, the comfort will improve, and so forth. But of course, that getting reflux usually indicates a surgical lesion. So instantly, you've got a sign that this horse likely has got a, a, a lesion, 
which requires referral um, is unlikely to be able to be managed at uh, in the yard. Some is, is that any any reflux or a certain over so yeah over two liters is generally considered to be um, a significant reflux um, and. People spend a long time fiddling about trying to get bits here, bits there. The realities of it are that if you've got a lot of reflux, it comes out fairly readily from the tube. So, you know, if, if you get a litre out and you're sort of searching around, that's not you know, a significant amount of reflux. Um, <clears throat> usually, though, by the time you see them, they've not drunk very much just recently. So normally you get absolutely zilch, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, over two litres generally considered to be the amount. Did that give you some confidence then, <clears throat> if you if you were in the field, that, that that actually maybe this would be something that should settle with a bit of time and a bit of analgesia? So yeah, the absence of reflux doesn't always give you, you know, it, the, that huge amount of confidence. Um, obviously, if you get reflux, we know we've we've almost certainly got a surgical lesion. If you haven't got reflux, yeah, more than likely, you, yes, you haven't got a surgical lesion. But equally, a lesion which is quite far. Uh, along the intestinal tract, so you know, ileal lesion or distal jejunum lesion, it could take many hours for the fluid to back up into the stomach um, significant uh, enough to get reflux. So that doesn't always mean that you've got that, um, you, know, you haven't got a surgical lesion, but it's it's certainly worthwhile doing. Any horse that's significantly painful or has got a high heart rate, um, you should definitely be looking to pass a stomach tube. If you don't, then you do risk, you know, the, the, the stomach rupturing, which, of course, is that's the end of the game, unfortunately. So um, I would always do that fairly early on, you know, so the pain relief at this point, and you've taken the heart rate, you've listened to gut sounds, and the stomach tube um, has been has been passed. And then um, the uh, uh, rectaling the horse, of course, is what can be quite useful. Um, I know from a uh, new well, from teaching students and new graduates' perspective, they always worry. Um, you know, crikey, I'm not going to be able to feel. Uh, they worry they're going to miss a surgical lesion on rectal examination. Often, there's been limited opportunity to practice it prior to graduation, um, and people feel very worried about that. Well, I think what I can say is, um, trust me, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> you know, you in. If you can't feel anything particularly abnormal, there's no significant distension of any structure, essentially the abdomen feels quite empty, then it's um, unlikely you've got anything significant going on. However, of course, things can be out of reach. You can only feel, you know, feel the sort of back one third. Things may be further in front. Um, small intestinal lesions, um, they're described as feeling like uh, uh, bicycle tyres, inner tubes. And it really is what it feels like. Just that's kind of that kind of size and uh, that kind of uh, distension. And um, you know, that's if you feel anything like that, then you have to be very concerned. Again, you've got a surgical lesion. Large intestinal lesion, um, by the very nature, of course, are, are bigger. Impactions usually are going to occur just on the bottom left um, of the abdomen, where the pelvic flexor sits. Um, and again, you know, very obvious. You put your hand in. There's clearly something quite large and and firm, and uh, you know you can um, you can feel the the size of it, the position, and and it's like then you've got an impaction, and then you look look back at you know how you're going to manage that in terms of uh, uh, fluid therapy. Um, large colon displacements, which can be either left dorsal displacements or known as nephrospenic entrapments, because they tend to be entrapped. Um, in the, over the nephrospenic ligament or right dorsal displacements which um, people always get a bit confused about but that's where essentially where the 
poet flectors migrated forward around and come back on the right hand side of the abdomen sometimes with a, a mild twist whether it's a 90 to 180 270 or 360 degree uh, volvulus which and the degree of twist will usually indicate the degree of distension that accompanies that because gas and fluid gets trapped uh, distal to the twisted segment um, they can be right also displacement that are, that are not particularly uh, twisted um, and not particularly gassy don't tend to be that painful they can be sort of grumbly colics um, but usually can be managed out uh, in the field if they start to twist they, and, and they start to develop into a colon torsion colon torsion is the most formidable colic that we deal with um, one of the most difficult even surgically to deal with with the poorest prognosis and certainly the most pain associated they have a huge degree of shock um, associated with them hypervolemic shock and a toxic shock just due to the juice the, the size of the tissue that's compromised uh, and even if it's returned to a correct position the massive release of endotoxin into circulation is overwhelming um, and you know become difficult surgical candidates nevertheless of course early referral does improve their chances but um, these sources are usually incredibly painful so if you put your hand into an abdomen of a horse it's very painful that just feels full of this gassy viscous you know sometimes um, incredibly large but sometimes even you can't really get your hand really into the abdomen you know, as soon as you put your hand per rectum you just feel this gas um, distension and they've got a very painful horse then that's a really urgent surgical referral um, and but you know as I said if you put your hand if you put your hand into the abdomen and you think I can't really feel anything um, you know you're probably okay you know this don't don't be too alarmed it's probably not a um certainly not at the moment at least uh, a, a a colic you need to refer nevertheless all that being said absence of reflux negative on rectal findings um even a low heart rate if you've got a horse it's uncontrollably painful that's undeniable in the sense of being a problem and requires uh certainly either very close monitoring um, <coughs> or consideration of referral. You know, pain remains, despite all our diagnostic tests, even within a referral centre, you know, of taking peritoneal taps and blood lactates and uh, blood gas analysis and all the rest of it. Pain still remains the overriding decision to take horses to surgery because it is, uh, you know, you can't deny it. You know, it is there. And as long as you're happy, it's, it's abdominal uh, pain and, and, and uh, something that would benefit from exploratory laparotomy you know pain is always the overriding feature so so, so touching on that so are there are there common things that might mimic actual colic yeah it's a good question i mean there certainly are um and there's been um things that you wouldn't necessarily even uh, think about of course um laminitis being one for example um and i've known um, even very very established and experienced referral centers um that um have been fooled by horses that are showing Ex, uh, extraordinarily painful laminitis these horses when you think about it you know may be reluctant to stand up uh, reluctant to move sweating etc um, and you know they they once the idea has been put into your head if you like it's referred as a colic then you know, it's easy to continue down that route and think that that's that's painful um, of course there are uh, any abdominally based pain so liver some extreme liver pathology or uh, splenic uh, renal pathology can can uh, mimic um, uh, digestive tract alimentary tract pain 
Um, and uh, myopathies are another, so uh, muscle pains and atypical myopathy being um, a, a, a very, very difficult condition to deal with, but will, yes, very much mimic colic in terms of its um, the degree of pain and high heart rate sweating etc um, and fractures uh, are another thing as well and you know I've actually been a little bit fooled by a fracture at one point um, again the, I went out to a seal a uh, horse with a merit foal a foal of it sorry it was a mare that uh, uh, the owner uh, all the bed was completely you know messed up following the, the night and she hadn't uh, drunk or eaten very much sweating a high heart rate and I'd gone through a lot of the process of a colic work, including passing a stomach tube and, and reckling, and suddenly thought to myself, as, uh, I haven't actually seen this horse move yet, and it, and it's, uh, it looks rather large around its femur area. So I got to walk a step forward, and of course it was non-weight-bearing lame and ultimately had a fractured femur. But because the owner had, had called it in as a colic, and you're right, and yeah, it looked like a colic. It wasn't until I actually you know, got the horse to move. So be aware that you know, things can, you know, as you say, mimic colic, um, and you need to be aware that um, you know, just make sure you see see it do a few things, feel its digital pulses. You know, actually, make sure you've you've seen it move. Um, and sometimes, you know, you wouldn't be at fault for treating it as a colic, um, but just things don't start to make sense. You know, persistent pain. You know, taking a, a serum biochemistry and hematology and things like that. In addition, we'll you know, looking at um, muscle enzymes. All these things. If things don't start to make sense, you know, that's that's certainly. Um, good thing to remember so do, do you um utilize blood work or did you utilize any blood work in in the field fish or or, or do you do you more see yeah. that when when animals come in or when when horses come into the hospital that you like that information or does it does it change a lot of what you do so certainly uh, an initial blood workup can be useful i think it's important to remember that the the most colics are purely spasmodic colics. And I say most colics in the field you'll arrive at, and just like your eye, just might have an episode of feeling a little bit sort of dicky in the tummy. You know, it's it's um, it's of no particular consequence. And taking a you know a, a, a blood and running it, you know, apart from the expense of the owner, was would be a bit a little bit overkill probably. I think the moment it doesn't start to follow that normal or or, or minor colic pattern then yeah for sure and of course you know pcvtp will give you some indication of the hydration state of the source and then you know you see kst for it's you know checking the muscle enzymes you've got to remember of course a horse that is frequently rolling lying down will have elevated ckst and the cross you know, horses equally horses with a typical myopathy um, can have surprisingly low ckst um or it can be up into, into very very high so there's there is some crossover it can be somewhat confusing so i wouldn't be leaping to blood work in the early stages only if things aren't quite making sense um but sure when they come into the hospital we won't necessarily run a, a full biochemistry profile necessarily we'll certainly run a blood gas um looking at a particular lactate um which is um, a good indicator of course in of tissues working uh, anaerobically so uh, which will usually give us an indication of whether we've got compromised bowel uh, in there as well so blood work I don't think it's, it's necessary uh, until uh, perhaps a little bit further down the line. It's probably an unnecessary expense for the owner. 
And, and when you uh, talk about like abdominal fluid as well, so is, is that something that you would more of, often do as well? So if you've, if you've gone through that process, but say if you've even uh, palpated an abnormality you think might be surgical from mm. erectile palpation, do you, do you still do, um, say, uh, ultrasound or, or uh, fluid analysis? Or? Yeah, so it's good. You know, this is, it's actually somewhat broadly, uh, you see... Uh, out in the field people with more access to or, or easier access shall we say to you know, very good ultrasound machines and and um you know perhaps the willingness to uh, to perform a peritoneal fluid tap um with ultrasound for sure it's um it's a really good modality for um uh, and very easy to use for, for colics um certainly when i was on the field i have to say i didn't use it that much uh, only because i guess um you know it, it well you know, with, with everything else, with the other um, things I mentioned in terms of the clinical exam, it wasn't always necessary. But certainly, the more you use it, uh, you know, you realise it's, it's it's very easy. And the, the simple way to use it, you don't have to clip anything particular. Certainly for a basic ultrasound exam, um, you know, putting some spirit um, on the horse and um, just a, uh, getting a an image, and particularly in the inguinal regions, um, where there's not a lot of hair anyway, that's quite useful. And you, it's an area where you tend to see distended small intestine. And again, you just see these these um, these loops, these circles of small intestine, um, you know, five, seven, eight centimeters diameter distension, um, and that's instantly. You know, it's very easy. It's a bit like doing a rectal exam. Instantly, you've got you know, you can see you've got uh, or feel small intestine. And of course, you you will be able to get to part of the abdomen with the scan. You won't be able to feel per rectum. For other things, it can be useful in, in in skilled hands, more experienced hands as well. I guess it's 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 a little bit easier. But things looking for things like um, can you see the left kidney, for example? Um, if you can, it's unlikely to have a nephrospenic entrapment. Um, that requires a little bit more skill, but it certainly is possible. And like with all ultrasound uh, examinations and and many diagnostic tools, the more you use them, the more you become familiar and, and happy. Uh, looking at that so you know if you have got an ultrasound machine and, and, it's, and it's suitable to do so then um, just scanning uh, the left kidney just uh, sort of back end of the rib cage on the left side you know you can if you can make out the kidney then great you probably haven't got nephrospenic entrapment but you can see that how it starts to be quite specific at that point about the kind of colic you're dealing with and that's more from from a referral perspective you'll start to think about um, giving the left rein thing to uh, contract the spleen which helps and then lunging the horse which helps relieve an ephospenic entrapment but out in the field that probably would be more than you would ex- be expected to do but merely just to put in those inguinal regions looking for distended small intestine that's really easy the other area where it can be helpful as well we mentioned peritoneal fluid analysis you've had is identifying a site where you know, you would want to place a needle or, or teak cannula into the abdomen to get a peritoneal fluid tap safely Many people would do it blindly, just as you'd expect, gravity-dependent, usually doing it um, uh, just uh, uh, behind the uh, the diaphragm and uh, a little bit to the right of midline, usually to, to avoid the spleen. Again, popping an ultrasound probe there, you can just get a good idea whether there is any fluid um, and, you know, where a sort of good spot. And so you just put the ultrasound machine on um, and then mark a spot. You know, Tipex is always a good marker. If you've got it, you know, you just put it on the skin, uh, at two sites and um, uh, to so X marks the spot if you like um, sterile prep and you know, getting peritoneal fluid and that is is a really um, useful um, 
diagnostic tool for sure, but not without a small amount of risk. Um, although it's, in reality, it's not that great. The big question whether you use a needle or a teak cannula to do so. If you use a needle, it's usually, you know, it's horses won't particularly enjoy it. Many people would prefer to have a slightly sedated horse and you're sticking a needle into it. And you've got to be careful from a safety perspective. You know, a horse is already not that keen on standing up potentially um, and uh, avoiding its back legs and so forth. But using a one and a half or even a two inch needle um, and just literally just popping it into the abdomen. Um, and um, <clears throat> if you do happen to get gut contents back, of course it's alarming. Could mean the horse is ruptured, although looking at the clinical picture you know the horse isn't that painful it's, unless it's very recently ruptured it's unlikely to be the case or you're doing an enterocentesis so you've got the needle in, into gut people worry about that and of course we see it surgically little needle holes in gut in reality um you might get a very low-grade peritonitis but it seems to be pretty pretty um uh, uh low risk and, and not doesn't really cause a big problem teak cannulas um are an effort to try and avoid that um, but you do have to you put a local anesthetic in the skin a, a little scalpel blade incision um, and then you just uh, push the teak cannula up through the muscle there and the idea of that is that you're less likely to puncture into the gut there, it really is sort of horses for courses you know I through my internship I, we always use needles here we use teak cannulas um, I think you're more likely to get a sample from a teak cannula um, because it doesn't get blocked as easily with um momentum and so forth um but i think going back a step you know getting per peritoneal fluid um doing a abdominal centesis in the field would be quite uncommon not not like hen's teeth but certainly quite uncommon and usually we come back to the you know looking at the horse if the horse is if you're doing a uh, you know an abdominal abdominal centesis if the horse is that painful that it's either difficult or you're thinking about that something you want to do then it could well be a surgical candidate anyway sometimes it just helps to give the owner a little bit more uh, convincing potentially or even yourself um you know if you get a serious sanguineous tap um then you know that's a generally indicative of a surgical lesion you know what are you measuring you know it comes back to that well total protein anything anything above 30 is 10 grams per liter is generally considered to be a, a problem um, and then looking at the cell count as well, and anything really above 10, you know, normally the cell count's going to be around about sort of 2 and below, times 10 to the 9. Um, so, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of sort of grey areas, if you like, but certainly if you get a serous sanguinous tap, um, rather than just an elevated protein tap, like you might do with a displacement, for example, or a non-strangulating lesion, but distension, that's where your protein goes up, but elevated uh, white cells and elevated protein um, and, and red cells also managing to get in there then you've got a, um, a, a strangulating lesion most likely uh, and that would indicate referral um, but with that you already probably would have had an elevated heart rate you may well have had reflux you may well have felt distenders more intestine on uh, rectal examination and uh, and in which case you know you sometimes you not, not that won't need to have gone that far but but you know it comes back to those sort of grumbly colics that you know, not quite sufficient, you know, those heart rate stays, you know, around about the 40 mark. Um, but they just keep on requiring pain relief to keep them comfortable. When I say keep on requiring, you know, maybe 8 to 12 hours duration. And they just trouble you a little bit. And, of course, then you start wanting to gather that little bit of extra information naturally. And that's where your ultrasound and uh, peritoneal fluid analysis and obviously your 
we talked about serum biochemistry and hematology. And there's extra little bits um, that you might want, the bits of evidence you might want to gather. So the cases re- referred to, Fisher, that do you um, ever medically manage those? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And the aim, of course, is to um, uh, to, to medically manage. You know, it's not a um, benign thing anaesthetizing a horse and to, in opening up its abdomen. There's risks of uh, infection and herniation and anaesthetic recovery, uh, anaesthetic risks as well, though they're very low these days. Um, but um, it's funny, actually, a journey sometimes can actually resolve um, things, and um, sometimes those pesky speed bumps coming into the college can just get a displacement to shift back in the right place. So, um, you know, which, and, you know, if horses often arrive with us um, much more comfortable than when they left uh, their home. And, uh, no, of course, that's a, that's a good thing, you know, and uh, sometimes the journey, in fact, an old-fashioned method of dealing with some colleagues was to take them on a, on a trailer ride and bump them around a little bit, you know. And certainly with, you know, on the basis that we see many horses more comfortable, that, that there's, a, there's certainly a sort of some evidence of, of that that we see. Um, but, yes, I mean, impactions these days, you know, whether it be large colon impactions, sequel impactions, um, anything that's not strangulating, that's not, uh, you know, where you're losing ground, you know, you're possibly becoming endotoxic. Yeah, we would seek to manage medically. And we have a very good um, medicine team here that, um, you know, take on all the colics. In fact, um, unless they're actually um, going to surgery where, where I come into play. Um, and, you know, that would obviously like just like cross species would include fluid therapy. Um, we know that oral, th- oral fluid therapy is probably uh, more effective, or at least as effective as intravenous fluid therapy for shifting impactions. So we may be tubing horses um, every four, even maybe every two hours with um, electrolytes to try and shift um, impactions. Um, and then, you know, all the other um, non-surgical uh, colics like colon displacements. Um, which I say things like nephrospenic entrapments we treat with phenylephrine and we lunge, um, right dorsal displacements, which usually will respond to uh, medical management, although some don't and require surgery to replace in the, in the correct uh, orientation. But those we may well lunge and um, uh, jiggle around. It's just about trying to shift that gassy colon. Kind of wants to go back to the right position. But um, just like if a balloon is just then, you know, it sort of can get sort of kind of stuck in the wrong. And sometimes, you know, the, you just get things moving a bit, bumping around. It's quite a weighty uh, structure, shifts some air out along the way. Um, a little bit of flatulence as well. It was a good sign in a colic. Um, and, you know, you you end up um, solving things uh, like that. But there's the only problem you've you know, got with any, you know, with any colic that, that um, uh, you, you, you that is grumbling on a little bit. You know, the Bafana, where the, the most information you get is at surgery. Um, so sometimes you, you know, you, you've got a lot of people, all these diagnostic tools, of which we you know we have everything you could possibly want on that front. Um, but there's always sometimes where you know you just you're pretty sure what's going on, but um, you know if it's if it's grumbling on and on, then sometimes you actually end up going for an exploratory laparotomy, even if the pain isn't that severe. You know, so there's two types of horses that undergo colic surgery, those which obviously require it there and then because they're super painful, or those that are just grumbling on and on, much in a small animal the same way, if you had a, you know, a situation where you just couldn't, can't stop them from, and that may be over many weeks, um, doesn't have to be over um, you know, very acutely, then an exploratory laparotomy is uh, is indicated. So, so I suppose 
I mean, it's part of the difference with small leases is that we can, you know, ultrasound probably a bit more their, their whole abdomen. And maybe if, if, if we get a bit stuck there, we might be able to CT mm. them. I mean, do you think that if you could put a horse through a CT, like as in an abdomen through through a CT, yes, you would yes. like that information? If only, if only for lots of other conditions <laughs> as well. Um, yeah, of course, that would help us, no doubt about that. And um, as ultrasound machines get better and better, and of course the users as well, then, um, you know, we... We do get a lot of information, there's no doubt. Um, and we usually have a pretty good idea. You know. But, um, yeah, I mean, any of these three-dimensional modalities, it would be lovely to, to be able to have a one. And they do actually, the the technology is is just about out there. It's just the resolution isn't fantastic. It's only available in, in um, a few centres, actually, I think, in the States, um, a CT that could potentially get a whole horse through. But, um, but yeah, I think... You know, but of course, at that point, you know, you're having to probably well, we'll definitely have been anesthetizing the horse, um, and um, you know, you've got to weigh up. There'll always be that sort of weighing up. You know, do we just open up and be able to, tr- you know, explore and treat at the same time? Um, you know, there have been times where we've 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 taken horses to surgery, and um, thankfully in the minority. But you open them up and you, there's nothing really much to see. Um, and there are conditions where that's you know there's um uh, that's always going to be possible there's areas of the abdomen that we can't are, are inoperable um and there's 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 uh, you know one or two conditions where we'll never we wouldn't have seen anything anyway um but the things like grass sickness would be another um, example of something which be, we get a heavy suspicion pre-surgery you've got a horse often with a with a high heart rate and distended small intestine often aren't that painful it's just a sort of flaccid small intestine but of course there can be a lot of crossover you've got a high heart rate distended small intestine you know you often get worried about a, a you know a surgical lesion or perhaps an ileal impaction potentially or something like that and you know during surgery we can take biopsies which which then confirm the diagnosis um so you know surgery sometimes has this sort of uh, maybe it gets a bad press potentially or it's, it's a big obstacle you know of course if it's a quick uh, look-see surgery you know then and you can gain a lot of information gain a lot of um, comfort by the fact that you've now explored that there is not a surgical lesion you wake the horse up and then you manage it medically and you know really put the full force of the the uh, medical department behind it rather than that little sort of Ooh, crikey, are we just holding out on something that does need surgery? So whilst, of course, we don't leap to surgery, that would be very wrong to do that because of the aforementioned risks, it should also not be seen as something to really avoid, like the plague. You know, it's there. Um, it's a big deal, but equally it can give us a lot of answers as well. So, so what's uh, changed in your approach? So obviously over the, say the last almost uh, 10 years that you've been uh, back at the RVC, so what, what have you... Uh, um, what have you learned, as it were, or what do you do differently now than you than you uh, would have told your younger self? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I guess, um, as I said, there's a lot more equipment that um, ambulatory vets would have now, or at least that equipment is better than it was. And, you know, Old Town, I say, is, is one in particular, and I know that um, you know, back-of-car haematology, biochemistry analyzers exist now. Um I suppose it's um, just having that confidence to do some of these, you know, like passing a stomach tube, which, which you know, no doubt when you first graduate, you're a little bit sort of, depending on the experience you've had, 
um, you're a little bit worried about. And there's always, you know, the odd, the, the oddities, you know, that that catch you out. You know, I've been, I've I've treated a horse had maggots in its sheath as for a colic, you know, and I kept going back there. And in fact, I have to confess, I referred it in it back into the hospital, and they took great pride in telling me it got maggots in its sheath. That's you just learn from experience. You do a quick check of that sort of stuff. You know, this horse was kicking its abdomen repeatedly. <laughs> I couldn't stop it from doing it. You know, um, but there's no substitute for experience. I guess that's the thing. And no one, you know, will from a, a you know speaking from the other side of the fence. You know, and, and and you will have experience with this yourself as well. That you know, if someone refers you something which you know actually you know was not that sick potentially or you know, when it arrived, it was fine, you know, you know, you'll always get backed up, you know, it's not like you're ever going to say, well, I didn't need referring and so forth, you know, it's all too easy in the ivory towers here to say, well, you know, with X, Y, and Z data, it didn't need to come, uh, whereas out there in the field, you know, in the wind and the rain, the muddy field, and the pressure from clients, from clients' friends, and all the rest of it, and the rest of the yard, it's a completely different um, environment, and often as well, not having you know, huge amounts of experience, and the other thing, of course, you can always do is call, you know, ring up the referral centre and ask to speak to, you know, the, the specialist, whether it be the medicine specialist, surgeon, whoever. Um, whilst you're on the yard, you know, it's always an option, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know. So, you know, you don't, you're not on your own. And I think sometimes you feel like you're on your own out there. And, you know, you can always um, ring up and get that sort of um, advice, you know, and... I think it just. I think clients don't mind that either. If you say this is slightly, you know, touch and go, and whether whether we should refer, and if they've got the backup, then I think that's 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 a you know should be borne in mind. That's always there. Um, and as I said, you know, if you decide to refer it, you're never wrong. You know, it's like a game of chicken almost. You know, you you, you you're quite brave not to in in a horse that's that's been quite painful. Um, and often with clients, you know, you might say, well, look, we draw a line in the sand here, you know, if we have to give this horse another dose of pain relief within the next four hours, then we probably need to refer. And I come back to the point, you know, and it's, you know, what would I tell myself, you know, I guess, and if I try to tell students, you know, pain, pain is it, you know, if you can't pain relieve your patient, there's something wrong. It sounds daft and stupid, you know, very, very, very obvious. But if you have to top up the pain relief before it's actually worn off, and given that most non-steroidals that we would give to horses, they'll feel unbeatable, phenixin, ketofen, meloxicam, whatever it might be, you know, most of those will last around about 12 hours. If you're having to go out four hours later and top it up, you know, something's wrong. And it can be that simple. And if that alone is the reason you refer a horse, that's fine. You're probably right. Is it's more the, the confidence to say this mm. is this is abnormal mm. isn't it? that that I've given some analgesia. It's still painful. That's right. We we need to up the ante and yeah, uh, exactly. and get some help. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's you know because I think owners find the concept of going to a hospital. I think well, it's going to end up on the table. Well, it's definitely not the case with any hospital. You know, certainly not with us. Um, you know, we would actively try and make sure you know, it doesn't happen. Um, certainly not unnecessarily but it gives you that confidence that uh, where it need to to go need to go to surgery then it's in the right place to do so and of course early surgery is always better you might avoid the requirement for resection you know if you've got a, a lipoma for example a strangulation lipoma that's just tightening gently around some gut the sooner you get to that and release it the more likely that gut can 
can recover and not require a resection. And that's always going to be better than, uh, you know, if it's gone too far, then you have to resect. And, of course, that's going to be, um, um, be associated with increased risk of complications. And even if the horse... Um, you know, it does make it, which, you know, thankfully most of them do, certainly a higher bill because there'll be more recovery time and more um, longer convalescence and, uh, and and greater intensity of post-operative care than if um, they don't have a resection, they're more likely to return to normal function quicker. So, you know, I think that's, you know, many ways not a lot has changed other than the equipment available. But, um, you know, certainly the advice of my former self would be, you know, that there shouldn't be that, there certainly isn't that barrier, there shouldn't be that barrier between, you know, those vets out in the field. Um, and, you know, you can just phone for advice, you know, it is, it is there. Excellent. Well, I, I suppose uh, I think we'll, we'll uh, wrap it up there. I think that's a, a very uh, all-encompassing idea about how to, how, to, how to manage colic, and probably we won't talk about the surgical options uh, uh, yet. <laughs> probably more of, a, more, of a, more of a video cast that maybe we'll do one, one day. Um, so, so many thanks uh, for your time today, Fish. That, that's, uh, that's great. Um, and thank you for, for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And that way you won't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you can leave us a review, that would be great. And we'll place uh, um, some show notes on the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine, it should be the top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. So you can either email uh, me, uh, dbarfield, at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.